0: Welcome to the 16th episode of Cursed with Good Ideas, the podcast about people we know on the internet and uh, that happens occasionally. And um, today we are joined by Nick Siever, um, who is a professor at Tufts University. Am I right? Hello. Yes, Yes, that's right. Um, And uh, I I, I think of you as anthropologist, but I don't know if that's an anthropologist of algorithms or of uh, attention computation. Uh, but you will uh, tell us a bit more actually the occasion uh, why we have you today is because your book uh came out officially right yeah, it's it's uh, it's real it's real it's on on uh, in bookstores and on amazon and on uh, on dot bookshop.org and it's called computing taste correct i'm i'm just going that's out right. of memory oh my god that's okay. right computing okay. <laughs> taste um and and uh how does it feel to have a book out
1: uh fine it's <laughs> <That's> good <laughs> Yeah, no, that's the idea. Yeah, it's the the book that's based on your dissertation is this funny thing where you're like working on it for a very long time and you spend a lot of the time when you were first working on it not knowing what you were doing. So it's a yeah. very long collaborative project with someone who uh, doesn't know what they're doing, uh which is, makes it a very interesting dynamic when you're getting toward the end and you're like, you know, I feel like I'm collaborating with a first-year graduate student because I am. <laughs> when was the
0: when was your dissertation uh researched and written
1: okay so I've I've filed it in 2015 okay. uh, the bulk of the field work was done in 2014 uh, and I started working on it sort of in earnest in like 2011 oh, right so it's been 10 years
0: 10 years yeah well that's pretty much when I did my uh, fieldwork and and when I've written my dissertation so I feel like yeah you know I should be what happens <laughs> yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, How how does it feel in terms of, um, you know, how you started and and where you got? How how far is it from, from your dissertation?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh that's a good question. I have I haven't gone back and looked at the dissertation okay. recently. I feel like it's too much too traumatic to go back and look <laughs> yeah. although I did I did learn that right before, you know, a few months before the book finally was available. Uh the dissertation came out of uh, it was embargoed in the online in the online thing and so it's there. People can find it online and can say, yeah. "Oh my god, you didn't change it. At, what did you do in the 7 years that between there?" Um but yeah, I think the big change is like I You know, I came to terms with what was in it. I did a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of that sort of high level synthesizing stuff where you don't really know what you have or you don't really know what the main point is. And I don't think I learned that through revising. I think I learned that through giving like a lot of talks. And so Mm. I had to give a lot of talks to people and give them the spiel about, you know, what's this about? What's the point of this? What's the takeaway? And, you know, after doing that for many years, you learn some things about what you think. Uh, And I think that was the big thing that helped.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it's funny because I know I've known of your I I know you mostly through Twitter and through academic articles. It's this, you know, weird relationships (laughs) that this podcast is mostly about, actually, like that's how we um, all kind of come across one another. But um, it's funny because I think the the first thing I read by you was this article about the piano. Like, yeah. Yeah. Player pianos. (laughs) Yeah, oh. which I read when I was writing about sound and music and things. So about oh, my opinion. God. But, but I, I was always curious because I, you know, as I said, like, I think of you as, okay, he's doing, he has an anthropology background and he's working on, working on computing algorithm, this kind of attention. But what was your path that kind of brought you from uh, anthropology to this topic and then to writing this dissertation and book on, on I guess, algorithms, but also music and taste and platforms? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. And
1: the player piano thing is a good segue in because that's actually how I got to it. I was, yeah, I, when I was a master's student at MIT in comparative media studies, I was doing this sort of like history of media thing, and I was really into um, Jonathan Stern's The Audible mm-hmm. Past. Yeah, And I was trying to say, you know, okay, what would it look like if you did something like that, but for like a weird technology and that, you know, mm-hmm. was not ultimately successful like the player piano. And so that article that there's like this, it's in this sound studies, special issue of differences. I can't even remember when that was my first article, which I wrote sort of revised from my master's thesis while I was starting my PhD in anthropology. In any case, the story about how I got into anthropology and studying this stuff is the same, which is that I was... A master student applying to PhD programs, and I needed to propose a project. And I said, you know, what am I interested in? I'm interested in automation and music, and the okay. weird relationship between automatic technologies and music, like a player piano. And I thought, hey, what's a what's an automatic music thing that's happening now? Uh, music recommendation, right? And That was it. I applied to a bunch of PhD programs. I actually only applied to one anthropology program when I was doing those PhDs. It was really sort of random. Um, And, you know, for a variety of reasons, not least of which was the fact that my PhD program was in Southern California and that seemed like a nice place to live. Uh, I ended up becoming an anthropologist studying this this domain, literally because I thought, you know, automation and music sounded like a cool thing to study. And so now I have to know things about, like, kinship and the advent of (laughs) agriculture and stuff, which I didn't think I was going to have to know. Yeah. Uh, back when I started. Did
0: you have a, an anthropology background of, like during your BNA or?
1: Uh, no, I had oh, taken, okay. when I was when I was an undergrad, I was a literature major. I took one class called the Anthropology of Sound, which was actually, all we read was, uh, what was that book called? That audio culture reader. Oh yeah, 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 Scott the Cox reader. And it was like an experimental music media theory class. Uh, and then when I was a master student, I one of my advisors was Stefan Helmreich, who's an anthropologist oh, of computers oh, and yeah, other he, stuff. Oh he's great. Yes, yes. But he, but I never took any of his classes. (laughs) And, uh, and so I actually had never taken really a proper anthropology class before starting my PhD in anthropology. So, really, the first one I took was like, here, we're going to learn about E.B. Tyler and Victorian era scientific (laughs) racist anthropology. That was my first anthro class.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Sorry if I'm probing into your background, but no, it's it's something I, I realized the more I talk, you know, with academics that we're always like, hi, I'm a sociologist, hi, I'm an anthropologist. And then you, you scratch a little bit and you realize people have the most varied wild backgrounds oh <laughs> yeah how did we get this way yeah but yeah that's interesting but i so i'm not no i don't really i don't think i was paying attention to these topics back in 2011 12 when you applied to your phd maybe it was a bit earlier but what was the status of automation and music was, was spotify a thing already or uh was
1: like yes. last FM. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> so last, so last FM, yeah, last FM is still around. Uh, Spotify yeah. existed. Uh, Spotify came had come into the US a little bit before then. I want to say it was 2007, but I don't remember. It could be 2007 okay, okay. to 10. Quite early, um, but it was starting to get popular um, for sure. And yeah, it was not I mean, okay. so so the one thing that I tell people all the time is like the the biggest change over the like 10 years that I've been working on this topic, 12 years that I've worked on this topic, is that back when I started, everyone thought that music recommender systems were bad, like not that Mm -hmm. they were bad for you, but that they didn't work. Right. Um, and that's changed now. I mean, people still say that they don't work for various reasons, but there's a lot more critique that's actually based on the assumption that they work like super well. And that's the problem. Like they're so good at profiling you that something bad's mm. going to happen. But it was really like an assumption that these things were just sort of, I mean, it was neat or whatever, but it was not good. It was just mm. like a kind of a gimmicky, a gimmicky thing. And that story, that, that ends up becoming something that, that I picked up more in the book, but that I I think really like a lot of the folks working on this stuff, when they were working back, they did not anticipate being as successful as they became, and I right. don't think that they were ready for it. I think a lot of stuff that sort of makes sense or made sense then about recommender systems like doesn't make sense now, and largely because... Uh, they became so successful in the sense of being, like, built into all sorts of shit and put put around, you know, everything you encounter online instead of just, like, over in the corner as, like, a neato little, like, oh, I don't know, you want to try using iTunes Genius to organize mm-hmm. your personal MP3 library? <laughs> like, that, you know, it was it was kind of a gimmick. It wasn't real. Is it something that you
0: see, is it, like, a constant oscillation in, in automation technologies that in the beginning it's wonky doesn't seem to work that well it's gimmicky and then it suddenly oh. works or people thinks it works too well and it's scary and then it kind of rebalances I don't know maybe we're seeing it with other things like not recommender systems but maybe um, it's like a generation that's right. automatic
2: yeah. driving I don't know like it yeah. applies to most of these sort of AI driven automatic decision driven kind of technologies. This goes, For sure. I think, driving, automatic driving, and then I was the chatbot and Yeah. yeah. generation. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just one well, the- the- Yeah.
1: You're, you're pointing to like a, there's like a theory here. Part of it is like the, you go back to sort of Latin winner and like David Noble automation critique stuff. And you're like, yeah, when you first roll out like the automated tomato picker or whatever, and it's fucking <laughs> trash. Like it's a bad, it's, like it's it does not work. Um, but it doesn't work to pick tomatoes very well, but it works very well to like centralize power in the, you know, in the boss, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Uh, So you can say, well, it did do, it's like, it's real task. And yeah, I think that's probably true that a lot of these things start out you know, one way and end up another. Um, and it's hard to say. I mean, part of it, right, is like I'm always, I'm always drawn to that, you know, sort of science and technology studies truism about, like, you know, there's no such thing as working and what it yeah, means when yeah, we say the yeah, systems yeah. work is that there's, like, you know, there's, we're getting to some kind of, like, agreement about what it means to work, right, what we expect yeah. these things to do. So, like, I get okay, one example I like to give, and this makes me feel old because, so Discover Weekly came out after I finished doing my field work. Um, on Spotify, but Discover Weekly was the first moment where I remember seeing people respond to like a new recommender and be like, wow, this works this is Mm -hmm. neat and the question is like what how why how did that happen Mm -hmm. because under the hood uh from what they said uh discover weekly was like a very normal boring recommender it was a very straightforward thing it was you know like if you listen to stuff that people put in playlists with other stuff then show me the stuff that's on those playlists right and there was some idea that people who put music in playlists were like cool or you know ahead of the curve or something and that's it that's a very boring normal collaborative filter And what happened though was they framed it in this way where all of a sudden people were like thought this was great And I think a lot of it was that they presented it like a little playlist in the side of your music player And they didn't tell you like oh you're gonna be able to listen to endless radio It was just like here's a little box with some shit in it And if any one of these songs is like not good Then that's fine. Like you know that we're just Mm. like poking around and so anything that was good You were like, oh wow, this is good And maybe they had a lot of low-hanging fruit sitting around because people hadn't been hadn't been listening to some of this stuff and it got worse right. over time. But in any case, there was this weird moment of like, oh, it works. And it worked because they changed the expectations about what it was supposed to be. It was not listenable. It was not like a good playlist in the sense of mm-hmm. like, listen to start to finish. But it worked because they said, well, what, what makes what makes a playlist like this good is that we're gonna give you 20 or 50 or whatever it was, songs. And you know, if a couple of them are good, then we won. That's like a success.
0: Right, yeah. I, I have to. Uh, first of all, I want to say for the listeners that the, the, the article we're discussing before was in this journal called Different. a our journal of Feminist Cultural Studies? Uh, I'll put the link, but it's called. Uh, this is not a copy. Mechanical fidelity and the reenacting piano. So that's yeah. that's where we started. But um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I, I'm someone who uh, hates Spotify. I think as an ideological position, as someone who try like makes music for fun, but also you know coming from the era of micro labels and trying to sell your own stuff and then having some music on spotify that gives you so little money for you know compared to what you can get from Bandcamp and stuff i've always been like oh i hate it i'm never gonna use it but um so so that's to say i don't actually know how it works i've never used it to listen to music so i don't even have this you know experience of recommender systems on it but yeah, that, that was really my question, like how how does it works or, oh, yeah, now it's good. Um, how is it defined on a platform like that? Is it something that comes from user satisfaction metrics or is it something that is discussed uh, like as a, on other platforms, maybe you're in this course, you know, like, oh, now Spotify is good or uh, now I like yeah. using Spotify because it's good. Or do they have a way of measuring? Of course, like they make money. So that's good. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you find? Right. In, in, yeah.
1: Okay, so there's, I mean, there there there's obviously like a lot of ways that that assistant could be defined as being as being good or not. And I want to say yeah. that like you know the the one that I think of as being sort of like useful is not one that they would use necessarily themselves, right? But if we have some sense of like people out in the world like listening to things, getting benefits from things, you know, um, that's all I think a good measure of of, of goodness that we can sort of mm. think of that shouldn't be in the you know, it shouldn't be in the hands of Spotify really to decide whether Spotify is good or not. However. Mm-hmm. Um, Within the context of sort of the research that I was doing, which I guess I'd say focused on sort of researchers building music recommender systems, uh, primarily in the U.S., although also in Europe a little bit, during this, you know, sort of particular window of time, kind of like mid-early 2010s. Um, In any case, they had their own senses of what made something good, um, and they were different than what that was. And they were different, like, even than maybe what, like, the business unit in one of these companies uh, would think of sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. So if uh, this is, if this is a leading question to get me to talk about this uh, article, I can, I can pick it up. There's an article I have called uh, captivating algorithms. versus yes. uh, Systems <laughs> as traps. And uh, it's a, it's a chapter book. Uh, it's okay. basically the same thing as the article. And, uh, what's in there is a sort of story of changing evaluation metrics in recommender systems. So like the early days of recommendation that we're talking like the mid nineties up through like 10 or 15 years ish later, um, you have this sort of King metric in recommender systems, which is called root mean square error. Uh, and what that is basically is like one number that tells you how different two tables are from each other. Mm-hmm. And those two tables would contain basically ratings. So like imagine a spreadsheet and the columns are people and the rows are songs or movies or recipes or whatever. Um, and at, and every cell is a rating, like what you liked it, yeah. uh, how much you liked it. And in some cases, historically, like Netflix would do this for a long time that though, that rating was literally like a number that you gave it, you know, five stars or whatever. Um, eventually those numbers become sort of implicit right like did you complete Mm -hmm. listening to a song how many times did you listen to it whatever um and so root mean square error was this thing that was like okay a recommender system is good if it can predict what numbers are going to show up in the blank spots in that spreadsheet um and so that's your metric right so this is like when the netflix prize happens this is 2006 seven ish Um, This is Netflix saying we're going to give out a million dollars to anyone who can get our recommender system better What better meant there was like can you reduce your root mean square error like on this Mm -hmm. big training data set that we have? Can you can you improve Um, and people did and it was like a big deal But by the time that that prize was over and someone finally won it it was like a huge composite team of people um, They were like actually this metric uh, sucks (laughs) This metric doesn't work and it didn't work for a bunch of reasons like one one of the big one was that like there's this kind of assumption that right like if a recommender system says you're like hey Nick you're gonna like this movie five stars and I'm like I like it five stars then I'm gonna be like really more satisfied with a system than if it said Nick you're gonna like this movie four stars and I say no I liked it five stars. Uh, right, and that like difference mm-hmm. would be something that would count against you in, in root mean square error. In any case, so that that like that assumption had not been interrogated really for a while, but it seemed to not be holding. Um, Around this time. And so they started moving to a source of data that they had much more readily available, which was all of this like interaction log, big data stuff, right? So, okay, how about did you watch the movie all the way through, right? Like Mm -hmm. we can know that now on Netflix, right? When Netflix, when the Netflix price started, they were still doing DVD mail, DVD mailing. They were sending out discs to people. And so you didn't know whether someone had watched the movie or not. Um, But now you could know. uh, And that seemed like a more legit signal for whether, you know, whether your system was working or not and uh, when you know you've moved this this is true for music streaming also right so like spotify is going to know things like did you you know did you turn up the volume did mm-hmm. you skip yeah. a song did did we show you a song on the interface and then you didn't pick it right all of these are sort of signals about what you might like and so instead of of saying we got this one king metric and we're going to predict your ratings and that's sort of it instead you sort of move to this this variety of like behavioral measurement these are all like measures we're sort of familiar with nowadays I feel like yeah, but you know yeah. dwell time and stuff and that becomes how you tell right so does your system work well do people listen more do they mm-hmm. keep listening does some subset of the user base that like wasn't listening before did they start listening more um, and so that really becomes kind of the ultimate measure um, which is you know in their minds i think is a measure of satisfaction and i always like to say like it's not unreasonable to use that right like that does sort of make sense that if someone yeah. like listens to spotify a lot then they like it better than someone who doesn't mm-hmm. listen to spotify a lot i think sometimes people talk about those metrics like they're inherently goofy and it doesn't make any sense to think that but i don't know i think it does make sense but it has weird consequences
0: yeah it reminds me recently i was reading a lot about the the history of uh, Credit cards and other kinds of like consumer, um, yeah, plastic coupons or memberships, that kind of changed retail and advertising uh, and consumer analytics in a similar way. Because before you went to a store and you bought something, and then they 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 gave you the uh, they told you the price you paid, and that was it. And that could only calculate that that thing was bought. But with credit cards uh, and and barcodes and all this kind of like automation of uh, consumer tracking then you had a lot more uh, different data points like you knew who bought it uh, what exact time and then you could track how many times they bought that specific thing per week per month or if they bought more during a month or another so you suddenly you had a lot more um, yeah data points or different data to, to work uh, and this of course were not recommendation systems but there were like yeah marketing or
1: there's a, a lot of like proto proto recommendation in that space so what though, is uh, think... what is proto so like things that are like like, like, so I think in advertising going into the sort of end of the 20th century, you have a ton of stuff happening. I don't know it super well, um, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that looks like what recommendations are going to be like eventually. Okay, okay. Um, A lot of this sort of like individualizing of data collection, and it's really funny because the people who sort of invent recommender systems is the way that we sort of think about them now, like collaborative filtering in the mid-90s, they don't know anything about this. They are making oh. this up from scratch, okay. which is very funny. Like there's a, there's a story you can tell which is like, oh, advertising Advertising, you know, insinuated itself deeper and deeper into the systems, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And it's certainly true that like, you know, since then, of course, there have been people who have brought up and brought up on the advertising side and are like, yes, we know what we're doing. Uh, Like that story that I think is fake, but uh, is popular about the Target thing where Target, the retailer in the US, like figured out that some guy's daughter was pregnant. Uh, and sent her like yeah advertisements yeah, yeah. for pregnancy yes. shit. That's that's a story from the advertising side of things. So like that the guy who who like originally told that story was like a marketing guru no, who, interesting. who to show a Target was like doing a really good job. Uh, he, it backfired maybe a little bit, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, but the but the 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 recommender system people were like. Computer guys who were like, yeah, you know, advertising, all that, like demographic marketing, like that's that's no good. We got to break no. you out of that. But they didn't know anything about it. They just like mm. knew in general that demographic marketing existed as like a concept. It was not like a well refined critique of a domain they knew a lot about. It was just... Well, we don't want that, you know. This thing where you get recommended stuff by the radio because of your 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 race and your age and your gender. Um, we can give you something more precise than that. And they end up sort of inventing a thing that was kind of happening uh, right, already, yeah. as I understand it. In the it's the like convergence, world.
0: It's kind of convergence. Yeah, exactly.
1: Systems. Yeah, so, so they're they're picking up on something, and you know, all that data is becoming available. The, on the on the credit card thing, you should look. There's a great book called called Money by LaSwartz. Swartz. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah, had, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lana's. Lana's I haven't incredible. read it.
0: But she's great, yeah.
1: We went, we went to, we went to MIT together. Uh, with oh. classmates there way back when origin stories. But uh, yes, <laughs> but, but that yeah, that was cool.
0: Well, um, she's cool, and then you, you you were also classmate with the guy who made the block by block board game. So that's two. That's right, classmates. Rocket
1: Rocket <laughs> Lee. Yeah, they're yes. cool too. They are, they didn't go into academia. Good for them.
0: Yeah. Yes. Uh, I wanted to say that maybe half an hour after we started, um, w- w- acknowledge that we haven't read your book yet. Uh, I don't know if anyone uh, in here managed to get it in time, but yeah, I didn't. I
2: mean, I'll order I still it. It's still on it. Way from You're on sway. You're okay. <laughs> yeah. hey, you don't um,
0: have
1: to read it. You just had to buy it.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, I yeah, know, but also to ask you cogent <laughs> questions about it. Um, so I'm just basing <laughs> it on, on, on what I know about your scholarship, but... Um, it it would be maybe good at this point to to explain a little bit what your uh, research looked like, uh, oh, yeah. because of course uh, today there's a lot of people studying AI and automation and algorithms, and we can talk about that. Here. But practically, what did you do? You already hinted a little bit. Did searches? Um, which to me is fascinating because I'm also studying um, AI and more specifically computer and machine vision. And that's definitely an interesting place to look at, like re- what, what researchers are doing, which then is you know presented at conferences and maybe funded by companies, and then it's bought by companies and, and used uh, in, in uh, everyday applications. So uh, it is like a very specific way of looking at a very specific type of uh, automation. So how did you, yeah, wh- what kind of research did you do?
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's a good and a big question. It's definitely yes. like the, it's the thing that people like ask me about all yes. the time and the thing yes. that I had so much trouble with for so long and maybe why it was such a pain to do my dissertation. So this is good. No, I'm in to am in a healthier place now with it. Uh, it was such a pain in the butt. It was so hard to get yeah. uh, anything because, you know, you want to study like a company or like some influential algorithm. And of course you can't get in there, but this is is a standard kind of problem. People have this problem in lots of domains. And so you always have to figure out like, okay, well, what are you gonna do? uh, Like if you can't, you know, I don't know, if I wanted to go and to say, I wanted to go study Facebook or something, and I wanna go sit in the Facebook offices when like someone's having some meetings where they decide how they're gonna optimize the newsfeed, like that would be great. That would be interesting to see. And you're not gonna, uh, right? Like that's, that's that's not gonna happen. So what can you do? Um, here's what I did. I sort of adjusted my research questions a little bit. I think that's a sort of standard uh, qualitative methods in general thing. You know, you have some interests, you have some, you try to go find things out. Like, eh, it's shaped a little differently out there than I thought. You change your question a little bit. You keep doing that over and over again. And eventually you have a dissertation. Uh, I, okay, so concretely, not like beating around the bush, I went to a bunch of conferences. That was my way of like trying to find people. So I went mm-hmm. to one called Rexis, which is the like, sort of recommender systems conference run by the ACM, which is the U.S. Yeah. Professional Association for Computer Science, um, and then another one called ISMIR, which is the International Symposium for Music Information Retrieval. So mm-hmm. this is like a music-focused thing, uh, sort of a library science, a lot of computer scientists in there, signal processing, a big mishmash, um, including people who are like trying to do optical character recognition on scores and stuff. So it's, it was really like a variety of things. So I went to a bunch of those um, I was lucky enough that I had a bunch of funding from, my, uh, from a research center at, that had just gotten started at my university so I could go to these things because they're not cheap to go to these computer science conferences. Uh, and I kept doing that. And I would interview people who I met there. I would did a lot of cold emailing of people. And then eventually, uh, there was someone who worked at a music recommendation company that I ended up, ended up doing uh, an internship at, um, who said, hey, do you want to come and study us? And this guy turned out to be influential enough within his company that he could mm. sort of just like let me in on his own. Uh, he, you know, he, had, he had just enough authority to, to say, yeah, this guy's with me.
2: Right.
1: Uh, and I think that wouldn't have happened even a year later. Mm. uh and i had tried to get into the same company a year earlier um by writing like a formal letter like i had you know interviewed some people yeah. there already Uh, and I had someone give me some advice uh, a corporate ethnographer sort of business school ethnographer say oh they want like a formal letter they want to know like officially what's up and as soon as I did that I got shunted off to lawyers uh, Mm, and never and they were like actually sorry no we can't do this so I was like real bummed (laughs) with the notes from this period that are like what am I going to do I I can't do any research and all of my like committee this is uh, people get this advice a lot I guess but it's like why don't you write about that Uh, and so you're like my dissertation is going to be 99 chapters long and 98 of them are going to be about how I did and get to do the thing I wanted to do, and nobody cares. Um, so I got lucky. I got sort of I got some access as an as an intern. Um, it was a pain in the butt. There was a non disclosure agreement. Uh, it's real hard to write about, actually, uh, mm. even even still. Um, and I don't. So I don't recommend that. I don't recommend signing non disclosure agreements. I will say, uh, yeah, that's don't. That's do that. a good if you, good advice. If you can yes. avoid it. Uh, Because it's really it's really a pain. Um, And, you know, I had a I had a thing added into it that was like, you know, I was getting things approved, but it took so long and I needed to finish my dissertation in a hurry. uh, So I didn't have any time to like write something that could potentially get rejected by a company for, you know, whatever reason they had. So a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor, unfortunately. Got it. I, I think it's interesting because this, what you just said,
0: made me think of uh, another of your articles. Uh, was it Algorithms of Sculpture, I want to say? The yeah. one which you present some tactics about how to study? Because that's, uh, that's the article. Uh, it's probably the first one I read from you about algorithms. Um, and it was quite useful to when I was just starting thinking about how, how would an ethnography of you know, AI products or, or t- technologies of automation look like? What can you do? And after that, I've seen it cited multiple times uh, in similar sort of methodological um, reflections on studying algorithms or this term, which is quite broad. Uh, And I think one of the points of your article was, you know, here's a bunch of things that didn't happen. uh, And here's some ideas about how you can sort of root around uh, these issues or find other ways in uh, including taking a step back and asking uh, what do these people think an algorithm is or how do they define it which is similar to the discussion we had before about what works right or what's good um, but um, what's what's your current uh impression about the term algorithms um, and, oh. and and how it is used in industry and academia because my, my impression is that uh, after you know reading a lot about a lot of scholarship on algorithms, and then looking at industry materials and, and talking to some computer scientists. What, what strikes me—what strikes me—is that when I ask computer scientists about algorithms, they're like, "What? You know, which algorithm?" And like, I don't—you know—it's like it's such a general <laughs> term for them, and and it's not like their company has one algorithm or, or like the right. algorithm. Um, but also, it's something that they do on a daily basis for for like very small—you know—for very small systems. might have multiple algorithms and. Uh, there are ones that you use all the time from different, you know, uh, famous, relevant papers and others you have to develop yourself. And it, it means very different things for different people. Uh, and in, in academia, uh, theory or anthropology, sociology, media media theory, it has a very kind of specific uh, meanings, right? The algorithm it almost means it's like a generalization of recommender systems and an AI processing of data. Uh, it could be a way to like, attributing agency to platforms, it's just like so many meanings. So I, I'm curious, like now you have your book out and you've been doing this for 10 years, What's your uh, <laughs> position on this?
1: Yes. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. So I hate them. No, algorithms are so <laughs> it's it's so it's very annoying uh, in some ways because. If there's okay, so the algorithms as culture article is like the big one, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, as far as like it gets cited around and mm. it gets cited to do all sorts of funny things, I don't know. It's very <laughs> it's interesting to see what happens when, when other. I like I believe in reader response theory, so I'm not fully responsible for the meaning yeah. of that mm-hmm. article. Um, but sometimes you see what people do with it, you're like, wow, okay. <laughs> That's not, I don't think I meant that, but okay, sure. I'll take credit for that. Or in some cases you don't want to. In any case, the term, I think it's so, it's so hard to recover what it felt like in these different moments in time as Mm. these sort of terms like wash over the discourse. So like way back when, so this is like 2012, 2013. Um, where, where you really start seeing like a bunch of sort of algorithm events. I remember being at, this was, is, this is I talk about it in the start of that article, actually, 2013, NYU, this conference called Governing Algorithms. And I remember right, right then feeling like, oh man, this is already passé, which is a very funny mm. thing to be thinking in 2013. I don't know. grads You know how it is like to be a grad student. You're <laughs> like, oh God, everything's passing me by. Um, in any case, what it felt like then was like, why were we saying algorithm? Well, we were trying to say algorithm because big data was what everyone was talking about right prior right. To that. And big data was very obviously like a marketing term. It was very obviously sort of like bullshitty. And algorithm thought this was wrong. <laughs> we thought uh, was going to be a kind of like return of technical specificity. Like, okay, I care about like what's happening, right? Like, I don't care about the, the discourse of big data. I care about like, you know, what is going on uh, in these systems. I care what's, what's real. Um, And so that was where algorithm sort of entered my corner of the sort of like critical humanities, social sciences, interpretivist, qualitative, whatever you want to call it, academic space. And it meant, it, yeah, like you said, it meant recommender systems, right? Okay. It was pretty specific, actually. Uh, and I think what you had were was some, like, variation there. You know, like, people would talk about things like, you know, computer vision stuff, for instance, was, was would pop up occasionally. Um, and that was part of it. But, like, recommender systems dominated that it, without being named as such, which I think was sort of interesting. Because, Got you it. know, the popular discourse, the algorithm, it's a recommender system. It's right. not like... People don't say that and mean a computer vision algorithm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think
3: now. Nowadays, um, actually,
1: they yeah. do say they say like the AI.
0: Yeah, right? yeah. Today, I, I feel today's used a lot in in AI discords, machine learning. Uh, the
1: algorithm or the AI?
0: E, the, the algorithm. Um, so of course, By I think who, though? In, 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 uh, even in academia, I think. I mean, of course, okay, when yeah, you yeah. say Facebook's algorithm, you mostly mean the, the feed. You know, the recommender system behind the feed, right? But but in many cases it's about yeah AI algorithms like you know and and and, and that to me is is difficult to then understand uh, even even in the case of like GPT three for example which part of it, yeah right because <laughs> there's so much it's not just one algorithm it's probably like a hundred or a thousand uh, every layer of the syst- this complex systems so uh, I don't know but also it's a useful term because it really you know this like idea of algorithmic society or culture of, yeah, okay, we're surrounded by these complex systems of, you know, nested decision-making systems and, and intelligent and deep learning models that, you know, all work. Of course, if you look at them, there will be algorithms at some point, you know, uh, as a generalization, how, how useful is it? But it makes sense that that uh, at that time, they were mostly referring to recommender systems because I think it was also the time when Amazon, you know, they published their kind of uh, paper about their um Forgot what what the name of it is, but the, the algorithm, the recommender system, basically, and then Netflix. Uh, these were kind of big ones, uh, so it became relevant as a term in that. Yeah, it was like episode. a it
1: was like an out there word. Like people were using it in um, in public discourse more. Obviously, became like a way big a way big thing then. And I think that was part of it, right? Was we were trying to figure out like what is this thing, the algorithm? Are we talking about like what people talk about when they talk about algorithms? And if we are, yeah. like, what people and or are we trying to talk about some sort of like technically specific thing and if so like how much how specific do you want us to get uh we have we're enumerated so i don't know like what do you mm. want me to do uh but i'm not yeah. enumerated i suppose but like a lot you know we I'm not, I'm, i didn't get into this job to look at equations and right. so like what am i supposed to do um what are i supposed to do with this what can i do with this and yeah i don't know so i i i'm like the algorithm thing obviously it's become sort of uh, even more vague and i probably played a part in that by by this giving people a license <laughs> to do it with this article i
3: when it was going through a review
1: one of the reviewers said this is algorithms as culture they were like everybody knows this already oh, okay. like why do we need to publish this and i was like i don't know i didn't know it i felt kind of bad about all of the research that i was doing and then it, literally like anyone who talks to me and says i really like this article it's almost always a grad Student who's like, I just didn't feel like I was doing real ethnography, and your right. article made me feel like okay, yeah. like that I was yeah. doing something that was legitimate. Again, I was like, good. This is just like a little therapy article with some yeah, little yeah. handy tricks for like try and do this. Um, but I don't know. Someone else said that they found it because they googled they googled algorithms and anthropology, and they found me, and so I just had good SEO, which would be yeah, ironic. Yeah, yeah uh, and maybe yeah. it's true. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely, you're one of the names that comes up when you search for that. Um, I mean, even Stefan Helm, Helm right? He wrote something yeah. about evolutionary algorithms and things. Uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. But yeah, that's interesting. But I feel like methodological articles about ethnography often have that kind of role when you say, hey, this is a new thing you can do with ethnography. And then people are like, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> I, no, no, I, no yeah. I yeah. that. but, <laughs> That's yeah. right. Not...
1: Not gonna lie, definitely. Like the list of the list of like tactics at the end, I was definitely thinking, you know, there's a bunch of sort of prominent methodological articles that do that trick, right? Where like here's a list right. of things you can do, yeah. yeah. And then someone's site, they're like, I'm gonna f- George Marcus, 1995, multi sided <laughs> ethnography. I'm gonna yeah. follow the thing or whatever, uh, and that's it. Yeah. And that yeah. is indeed it worked. Yeah,
0: yeah it worked.
2: Uh, yesterday I was reading the article, I think the cultural study one on what was the name of the article? It was the, the, the seeing like in an infrastructure yeah yeah it was quite interesting that um that you talk that the, the you're talking about the people, the engineers, the developers behind these um, uh, algorithms, especially in music recommendation, especially these questions of diversity, how these questions of diversity. Because a lot of time when you hear about, like, this is, like, I'm not studying, I'm not very much paying attention to, like, music industry, but I do pay a lot of attention to gaming industry, for example. It does also have the sort of issues where, um, say, Blizzard gets blamed for um, there's not enough uh, diversity in their workforce, and I think they they were sued by the California government for issues related to it that's much bigger than that. But this sort of applies to a lot of the tech industry. And obviously, in your case, you actually write about that how the 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 actually impacts the not is not just a gesture, it's not just aesthetic choice, but it actually impacts how how the uh, let's say the music representation system works, like how it is designed, how it is implemented, how it works in particular to particular people, to particular group of people, and uh, no matter what the demographic are, I I think that's I think that's very interesting to a degree that. I think a lot of people, like especially in the space of talking about this sort of corporate diversity stuff, are are often very moralistic to the degree that uh, it doesn't sort of oh like to a, to to some of the sort of prag prag pra- sort of pragmatic people, they would be like oh how does it matter like but to a degree it, it's shown an article really matters and 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 that's I, I think that's very interesting. Like I don't know, like you under you can provide some more details in terms of like um how does that line of argument came out of your field work especially?
1: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so like the the other thing that happened sort of over the course of working on on this was that you know the dominant frame of talking about recommender systems and algorithms in general became this sort of bias. Uh, this bias frame which has been it's interesting to see to be so many discourse cycles along now because like we've got plenty of good public critique of of the sort of narrowness of the of the bias critique but one of the big things right was like okay why are these systems bad uh, in the specific ways that they're bad Um, you know the teams that make them aren't diverse enough uh, maybe if the teams were more diverse, they would anticipate certain kinds of harms that, you know, someone from a from a marginalized group would say, like, obviously this was going to happen, um, or they would, you know, uh, ha- make different choices that would lead to different sort of outcomes in the system. And I think, you know, that makes sense. And it's totally consistent with this idea that, you know, developers sort of put their own worldviews into the things that they build. Like, sure. Uh, but there's some problems with it too, right? With like, one is not least of which is this assumption that like, okay, these teams should diversify and sort of, force the new people to like fix their problems right to say okay your job here is to like solve this bias issue that we've that we've created um and another of which is like okay well what do we mean by by diversity and you see this uh, capture of the diversity concept um you know uh, uh what's his name uh olafeme taiwo's uh elite capture book is really great about about this specific specific problem where a certain model of diversity gets gets held up and then they can say, okay, well, we've met it, we have diversity and uh, go and then you're done. Uh, what I talk about in that article, this uh, is called Seeing Like an Infrastructure, and it has a subtitle that I don't remember, uh, is, uh, is about this way that these systems that are really trying to be post-demographic, right? Like I was saying before, these recommender systems, um, the people who build them really, really, really are averse to talking about demographics, which is not surprising this is normal, more normal sort of colorblind racism, tech industry kind of stuff. Um, and what you get is this discourse, of like okay well we can't assume that our interests are the same as our users interests and it's like yeah yeah that's right that's what everyone's saying uh, you know we have to we have to we have to build for people like us okay good 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 um, how are they different than us how, uh, well one really big difference is that we're really into music uh, and they're not right the, user, the average user is not as into music as the average developer of one of these systems they, they would say uh, and so that was kind of like the main problem that people would talk about that you had to overcome it wasn't like oh actually we're all sort of white dudes in our, in our, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, But it was this other thing. It was this, this idea of what I call in that, in that article, um, avidity. I had to, to be fair to them, I think this has changed since then. I think there's much more of a sort of broader set of, of understandings about what diversity is and how it matters. But speaking to that sort of like 2014-ish moment, um, that was definitely striking to me you had this, this, this sort of move to talk about the diversity of the composition of the workforce at tech companies. Um, but you had this other discourse about what, what the difference between ears and users was, or like, you know, what the difference that mattered was. Uh, and it was this, it was this, this model of like being super into music and trying to imagine what it would be like to not be really into music. Mm.
2: Uh, just sort of trying to sort of find parallel examples. There was a really interesting example came out of also Blizzard. Blizzard had a diversity bit, like tool or something. I don't know if Gabriel, you remember this. Like, they, Blizzard, the, the they game,
0: have... gaming company. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Blizzard.
2: This. They had this diversity tool where you have different like matrix, it's like um, a graph sort of thing like where you have like, uh, it's it's like, um, what was the name of the graph, like you have like- um, I, I remember the news, but I don't remember. It's kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't know, I forgot exact terms. So oh, one of those like radar okay, chart so kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you basically go, so, okay, so this is sort of the level of racial diversity. This is the level of gender. It's, it's much more than that. They're like, I think they are like eight or nine or even ten metrics. So you, you, you like you go. Um, so you have to reach a certain threshold to be qualified as diverse, but it doesn't have to be, um, but, but then how it is calculated, they, they made a formula, of course. For this um um this particular thing and and it was revealed right it's like um it's like uh, it wasn't it didn't came out the scandal but it sort of came out okay so this is how they do it yeah was like, it for, uh, was it it for players
0: say... or, or what
2: no we... no no it's for creating characters in games uh, like say okay, Overwatch okay, yeah, yeah. I'm, are we gonna create a character yeah, yeah. and this is the next character okay we we, we sort of. We we first find these tropes for these characters and fit them into the formula, into into the the, the, the calculator. It's basically a calculator. And okay, then, uh, okay, we pass the calculator, then we create uh, the characters, then okay, this is the character, then we create the backstory out of this base of tropes so this is sort of the the steps have taken to ensure diversity in the creation of characters in their games right yeah especially yeah. applies to overwatch for example
0: yeah, yeah. i mean when also they have very global scope um with games like yeah World of warcraft
2: um yeah i was just sort of wondering how does that sort of different like how like what, what sort of because they are the probably definitely different ways of like say uh, the 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 when in the article you talk about uh, sort of uh, uh, what's the concept of Av- avid- avidity uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and how is this sort of different uh, of course for music fans and to gaming fans even if they're so also sort of. Obviously, I'm not even talking about like a recommendation system in this case. Yeah, Just it's a good like question. Diversity, the, concept of, yeah, the concept of diversity in sort of corporate space. I think
1: you end up with, right, like, I mean, one of the things that happened, I think, when people, when they released that that diversity wheel or whatever it was, is it sort of was looked ridiculous, right? It was this sense of like, okay well what you're going to try to like mark you know how obviously this is not everything you're trying to be i it's, it's sort of i don't know it pointed to to me to sort of the absurdity of like this is not this doesn't seem like the approach this doesn't yeah, seem yeah. like it's going to work and i know it's not clear what is right it's not and and you can see what you see in there is in some sense the like reflection of diversity demands through this like neoliberalism corporate funhouse mirror or something like that Mm. um which i don't know it's 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 instructive in some ways to say like oh you mean this you mean this um you see it in recommender systems when people talk about making quote-unquote intersectional recommender systems and they're like well we we model everything in like multi-dimensional space uh so anything that's in like you know these set this set of dimensions we can talk about as being intersectional oh so okay like, got they're it, like yeah, literally yeah. they're literally <laughs> at like points in a multi-dimensional space uh, which doesn't quite get at like what intersectional means yeah, yeah, in yeah. its original sense but also but it does sort of get at some of the more crude boring like representational and, so i say boring i mean like not useful um mm-hmm. representational things which is like all right you're not truly diverse and let, until you have even coverage of the entire space of possible identities uh which is not doesn't seem like the, uh, yeah, a successful direction to go. Yeah, exactly. It's almost, it's what that uh, is mapping.
0: Yeah, it's almost like structural structural anthropology schemes are back yes. into corporate.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, they're they're all
1: crypto structuralists.
0: Now there's all this uh, popular discourse or like vernacular, you know, effective uh, reactions and reflections on experiencing a, a Twitter-like platform or a microblogging platform that does not have. A recommender system, right? Or algorithms? Yeah. Um, and I think we were uh, we were riffing about it on Twitter a few days ago. But I was interested in in hearing your perspective on this. Um, yeah
2: after all your research.
1: Okay, so the, the like the the first like killjoy thing is to say well, a reverse chronological order is a very simple algorithm, which is fun right. to say because yeah, it yeah, feels because yeah. you're like I'm correct. But uh, <laughs> it's it is sort of useful because it it gets you back into that sort of important media studies point of like none of these things are neutral. There's no neutral option. It feels neutral and reverse cron gets like a, a, it escapes from a lot of critique because the alternative is so complicated and laden in really obvious ways and so the emergent qualities of like a reverse cron feed where you know you only see that one guy who posts constantly <laughs> and you don't see something if you if you're not on it all the time like that's a bummer it's not ideal <laughs> and like yeah. That's, you know, it's got it's got its problems. Um, and I think it's, it escapes because it doesn't feel, like, unnatural, right? It doesn't feel like an imposition of some other kind of order. But um, it's it've been interesting to see people sort of encounter that. Uh, Mastodon has had, I guess, one of the options. Mastodon has had relatively, like, low volume, I suppose, um, which mm. makes it sort of easier um, to deal with because you're like, okay, fine, like, I'll just go and look at stuff. And I was always, <laughs> a, for, on Twitter, I was always a, a like... Bring me back to the regular, like yeah, non algorithmic yeah. feed, and I'm gonna just like eat my slop here, scroll back <laughs> as far as I can until you know. I, I, oh my god, yeah, I was on, I spent way too much time on Twitter over the yeah, past yeah. Same, 15 same. years. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. So it's sort of interesting to see people like reappraising their relationship to these things, and and I don't know what one thing you get is that the algorithm gets, gets so tied up in the identity of the thing, and this is maybe escapes your question, but like, no, when people talk things. about like why spotify is bad for instance and i should say right i don't i don't study spotify specifically but spotify is obviously like the conspicuous example of of this kind of platform everyone's like okay well the problem spotify is and then the and it's some combination of like capture of of the of the market um bias or whatever in the algorithms uh bad bad um compensation obviously to to artists um and it's funny because recommendation gets thrown in there like it's a necessary feature of 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 spotify uh or that like artists Compensation and a recommender system are necessarily yeah. connected in some particular way, uh, and I don't know. I. It would be interesting to hear someone make that case substantively, because it's usually just insinuated now. I don't know what the case is, and I would I would see them as being not necessarily connected to each other. With this idea that like, oh yeah, that's the pr- like recommender systems are the problem with a big streaming service um, is interesting to me because it's taken as like intrinsic to a big streaming mm-hmm. service when it when they didn't have them when they yeah. started, right? They, they, they were, that was not how it worked. Um, it is true though that for people working on recommender systems, like. The existence of of a big service like Spotify or whatever Deezer mm-hmm. um, that can can sort of claim to have "quote unquote" all the music, although obviously not really, uh, that's like that was kind of the end game, right? There was a sense that like that was gonna happen, and so if you look at any music recommender system that existed between 1994 and 2010, you get this feeling that they're just they're waiting for Spotify or they're wait- they're waiting for large yeah. on-demand streaming services. Um, Because, you know, like I mentioned iTunes Genius before, but people don't remember even, but like, you know, the one that would would give you recommendations from your own personal MP3 library of files that you had ripped onto your computer, which seems like not a real problem now. Yeah, I I, I probably don't remember
0: it because that would be the first thing that I turn off in a piece of software, you know, (laughs) I, I don't want that.
1: You yeah. had to like request. I didn't even remember. I should look. I pure. I don't remember what the interface looked like, but I think it was one of these things. Like you know, over on the side, you could go and pick and be like, I don't know, show me something. Uh, and it was you know, it existed. I don't know. It was not. I don't remember using it, although I must have at some point. But uh, in any case, sorry. The point is that uh, is that these these recommender systems get sort of tied up in the identity of these platforms, which are doing a yeah. lot of things, not just recommending. Um, And in some ways they become kind of like the, you know, the sin eater of the, of the platform where you can say, well, the recommender system is where the insidious cultural stuff happens. That's where they really like put their finger on the scales of cultural whatever. Um, And I don't know. I mean, there's, I have a lot to say that's very critical of what people are doing in this, in this space. Um, and I think what's interesting for me to think of is, you know, what alternatives look like and what alternatives seem plausible, not because I think any critic needs to like solve the problem, um, Mm -hmm. but because it kind of helps you point at what the problem is. And I always end up coming back to, I just don't think that a big centralized service like this should really exist. Right. And that's, and you can't, well, you can't really escape that. That's Mm -hmm. a, that's a sort of hard thing to get around because that's not, someone at Spotify is not gonna be able to entertain the idea of like, well, what if you uh, disbanded? Yeah. What if that was the solution to some of these problems? Um, because I'm not sure that the recommender itself is actually the, the source of some of these issues. I think in some sense it's the centralization and maybe that's where the Fediverse stuff becomes interesting but people clearly have a hunger for centralization. That's the other thing that's become clear from the Mastodon, et cetera thing is that people are like, well, the problem with this is that not everybody's in the same place and despite kind of hating that about Twitter, that was kind of what was good about Twitter also.
0: Yeah, I mean, I also want to follow up on this. I want to say that, what well, actually, uh, sorry for saying that you study Spotify but that what tripped me up is precisely this that we we tend to identify to like uh, yeah equate the, the the recommender system with the platform and then it becomes like yeah that's that's it but it's not um so I was curious about your book and your whole research what's what what's the relationship between uh the recommender systems and what the researchers develop and these platforms and is it one of um, basically just you know uh, uh, platforms and companies funding research or, or doing these competitions and taking a recommender system that then becomes their um, like competitive advantage or the thing that differentiates them because otherwise you know there would just be different streaming platforms right or, or music or whatever but then they have their algorithm which seems to be the what, what people identify them with or what people prefer one over the other or something like this does it make sense
1: Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. So back in back in like 2014, that was definitely the line was like okay they tried music streaming services tried to differentiate on content yeah Uh, you know oh so-and-so's got the whatever you know an exclusive title later would do this but like it didn't Mm -hmm. really seem to be plausible and most of the people i spoke to were like yeah that's not gonna last and and also it's like you know even if it does last it's for very a very small amount of of the catalog right it's like not a lot um, so rel- essentially nothing. And so, yeah, they would say, how do we distinguish ourselves? Well, it's going to be on the quote unquote discovery layer, right? Like how mm-hmm. do we make an interface that sort of like, gives you use of all of that stuff, helps you find the new things, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, maybe people are self-aggrandizing. It's totally possible. Um, that that's, that that's, you know, it wasn't really the case then that that was what what was happening. I think it's funny now because the discovery layer is also not that differentiated. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not like a, no long, I'm no longer an avid explorer of different Mm. music streaming services, but like uh my sense is that a lot of them end up working you know kind of the same way there's like a few different kind of features that different ones have i mean obviously one of the big things is just the massive consolidation under spotify yeah. um of of a lot of this stuff but uh, and that's 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 probably part of it where you're sort of getting um homogeneity just by virtue of that um but yeah i don't know i mean yeah i don't know yeah
0: that makes sense and 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 the thing you just mentioned uh, about mastodon and twitter about people, I mean people, or, or things, or music, or, or movies, or whatever, being in the same space it made me think of the. One of your recent, most recent articles, uh, which was about spaces, right? Data, oh, yeah. <laughs> space, uh, which is something that I'm also like looking into recently. Uh, I like the idea of latent space in, in, in machine learning, and um, and I guess of data sets. And, and more generally, the question is: Yes, recommendation is now so relevant because of the quantity and quality of you know, the, the buzz buzzword big data that it's actually now you know everywhere. So th- there is definitely a need for uh, for curation and and selection and recommendation, right? In order for people to to get what they want to consume or to yeah consume stuff. I mean, it would be very difficult otherwise to to find things. So. Yeah, I'm curious. Is this like is this a new thing? This this uh, new spaces, new data spaces, or uh, even social spaces that need recommendation systems, or does it have a longer, more consistent history, um, even you know before uh, automation,
1: basically? Yes. Okay. So uh, there's a few <laughs> yeah. things here. One Convoluted. is the, yeah, yes. <laughs> that. Yes. Con- convolution is what we're always doing, yes. isn't it? Um, so yeah. So the there the there's a, j- a chapter in the book. This actually early early on um, about information overload um, okay. and this was one of the, one of, most of the chapters in the book have something that exists out in the world that someone's already read if they've read my articles, but like this, this chapter only exists in the book. So you got to get the book. To s- um, but it's the, it's, it's this question of, um, you know, why do recommender systems exist? And mm-hmm. if you ask someone, they will almost always say, cause there's too much stuff, right? right. So you talk, you know, like why does Facebook filter the newsfeed? Because otherwise you'd be overwhelmed and you wouldn't have mm-hmm. a good experience. Why does Spotify give you recommendations? Because there's, you know, 40 million songs or whatever. Why does Netflix, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like you're pointing to. Um, And so that idea is really, really, really important to the justification of these systems. And I Hmm. spent a long time thinking about it Um, when I was. So I I had a a sabbatical that I was supposed to be working on this book, and I was like, I'm going to revise the whole dissertation into the book in this like six months, and that's going to be done. Um, And what I did instead was I started writing this chapter, and I was like, I'm going to read every history of cybernetics that I can get my hands on because. (laughs) It seemed like what was going on was this kind of like hangover of the sort of information age enthusiasm, right? Which is people saying, wait a minute, maybe too much information is is bad. um, And how are we going to solve this problem? So I read a lot of this work on histories of information, prehistories of information, of information overload. Um, and yeah basically you find this is to be expected I suppose when you read historians it's older than you think um, hmm. there's there's people there's a sort of subset of people like Anne Blair who doing work on what they call early modern information overload so this is folks writing in the early modern period in Europe uh, sort of post-printing press who are like oh my god there's so many books what are we going to do right <laughs> <Okay>. there's like <laughs> yeah. hundreds of them like what are we going to do about this and they <laughs> write about that it's kind of funny to see them use the phrase information overload because obviously neither of those terms had yeah. their contemporary meaning like at that moment in time um but you can find examples of things that look like information overload and conversely as sort of importantly like weird techniques designed to fix that problem uh you know as far as back as you can look basically right you've got uh, people who write in the space like to cite um uh, 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 there's a line in Ecclesiastes that's about oh, wow. information yeah. overload. Okay, uh, And there's the Seneca uh, has yeah. a thing. But in any case, it's, goo- it's a little goofy. But there's there it exists. There's like an old history there. Um, but there is this quality now that feels different, which is this like, you know, it's information now. We're in right. sort of informatic moment. Um, and so the thing you're being overwhelmed by is not quite the same as it was before. It's information, which means like, you know, if you were an early modern scholar being overwhelmed by books, you didn't have the sense that the whole universe was like secretly made out of books and that like you were just gonna keep getting overwhelmed by books. But now there's this like I'm overwhelmed by information and oh my god everything's information right that's right. the kind of worldview that we're talking about and so I'd spent a bunch of time here trying to talk about like what does that mean? Like what is what is like it means things like someone says hey you know what the real bad recommender system the real filter bubble that was your childhood home where you like were <laughs> isolated you know from you didn't you lived in a rural community and you didn't have access to the internet or whatever that was the real filter bubble and that kind of claim only makes sense if you can think about a continuity between something like a collaborative filtering system and mm. living in a town right which is a weird yeah. connection to make but when that totally makes sense to the people I talk to but also like to me right like I live in this in this informatic cosmology as I'd call it in the book uh too and so yeah it's easy for me to say like yeah of course that's kind of like a recommender system a lot of media studies is is in this uh, vein also right this kind of like cybernetic hangover that we're under in, in media studies where we're like i'm mad about computers but also uh mm. i am I'm, like i'm cybernetics also right. Like, where I'm, I'm a result of this um, everyone should read bernard Gagan's book that's coming out code from oh Innovation the Code one theory yeah. oh i'm so excited Yeah, uh, yeah i'm, yeah, I'm me very too. hyped about that book because this is exactly what i'm interested in this way that like we feel like we like the sort of qualitative, interpretive, humanist, whatever people feel like we're on the opposite side of something from this mm-hmm. that I want to be like, you know, I don't really feel this anymore. But a lot of people feel like, oh, you know, the recommender systems suck because they try to do math on taste mm-hmm. and taste is about society. It's about expression. It's about you as a part human. Um, and I just don't think that holds up very well, because once you start to look into what our theories of taste are like, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of connection to technology and to very sort of, you know, cybernetics-friendly uh, things. And that is so that if there's a difference there, and there might be, uh, that's not it. The difference is not that, like, somehow we've uniquely got a grip on the sort of, like, subtle nuances of the human experience, and nobody else does. I don't I don't find that a very tenable position to hold as an anthropologist.
0: Now that you mentioned taste, uh, just to go to the other uh part of the book's title after computing uh i have having not read it is it uh, is it a, a central part of the book like discussion of taste and theories of taste and is like almost a is there a anthropological or sociological angle on the uh, uh yeah on this idea concept of taste like you know back to bordeaux or i don't know whom or is it mostly about how this, these companies and recommender systems um define it
1: Okay, so the, yeah, yeah. It is, so it's in there. It's not. Okay. I will say that. Yeah, have you? were you one of my peer reviewers? Every all the peer reviewers are like, why isn't there nope. more about tasting? No, nope. I thought there nope. would be more. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. So it's in there, and it's in there mostly at the beginning, and it's in there in a weird way. So I can tell you the sort of short version, which is like yeah. my original framing for this project. The sort of like I'm writing grants framing was. Okay, we got people building recommender systems. We know they're building their theories about stuff into them. Um, if they've got a theory about why people like what they like, they're going to build that into their system. And what I'm going to go do is I'm going to find out what those theories are, how they get built into the systems, like what kind of connections there are there. You know, does it change? Do they pick up new theories from their techniques? You know, what's that relationship like? Um, you know, So you imagine, right, if you say people like music because of how it sounds, then you might build a system that analyzes audio data. Um, mm. If you had audio data, you might say, I don't know, maybe people like music because of how it sounds, right? There's, there's obviously like a mm-hmm. kind of feedback loop we can imagine here going both directions. And so I would ask everyone that I interviewed, I would say, why do people like the music that they like? And they mm. would always look at me and be like, what? <laughs> Like, I, I don't know. Uh, and it's, so there's a bit, the the prologue of the book has a big section on this, which is like, they don't know. Okay. And it's really, there's not, there's not like a coherent theory of taste. What there is, is this kind of like effort to make systems that open enough that whatever is the reason why people like what mm. they like, our system is going to somehow capture that or okay. a proxy for it. And I realized very late in the game that what I had sort of done was said, this is the death of theory, right? Like, this is mm. a very classic big data, like, there's not a theory of taste, they're just doing stuff. Yeah. It's not exactly the end of theory, um, but it is true that there's, like, the, what they're building is, like, not a system based on very specific theories of taste, but a sort of exploratory scheme that's designed to kind of, he- you know, help taste along while not knowing what taste is and so when i talked to like sociologists sociologists like to say this sorry i, I like to rag on sociologists it's not oh personal. yeah i am one, um, so that's good <laughs> <laughs> sociologists like to be like if only these companies would have sociologists then they right, would right, really right. understand what this is and like <laughs> the idea that if only you ta- taught someone at netflix about Bourdieu that they would make like a better recommender system yeah, yeah, yeah. i think really misunderstands the problem right yeah. like the problem there uh is not you know, can they implement Bourdieu in code? And they sort of, you can implement Bourdieu yeah, in yeah. code because uh, Bourdieu's like field theory and all of, yeah, of the, st- all the yeah. plots and distinction are made with yeah, computers. Yeah. Yes, yes. Like it's, it's correspondence <laughs> analysis. It is related historically to some of the same techniques that end up in recommender systems. Sorry, that's mm-hmm. what's in that Everything Lies in a Space article that we mentioned yeah. earlier Perfect. Um, when I started geeking out about this. Because I'm very interested in this similar moment in anthropology in the late 60s and 70s. Yeah. When everyone's like, We're going to do this with computers. Uh, And they make wild, wild research programs. In any case, So what I end up saying is like, okay, there's not a theory of taste in here that's explicit, but you get this kind of weirdly ramified and complicated theory of taste that kind of emerges just like in the stuff itself, right? So like building a, like a system is a theory to a certain extent, right? Like if I build a recommender system, it's like a statement about mm. taste and it can be a vague statement about taste. Lord knows social scientists are good at making vague statements about taste, but like that's fine. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot. Yeah. So like, so it's, it's about taste and I try to set this up and I don't know if it's really successful. It's kind of a gimmick to say like, yeah, so I don't talk about taste explicitly a lot through the rest of the book, but it is like, it's all about taste. It's, you can read it as being all about taste, but taste in a super weird form that doesn't look like most of the ways we talk about it. And I do try to justify that theoretically uh, I spent forever trying to sort this thing out. There's a part in the book that I just—I I have the worst memories of writing, writer's block when I was a <laughs> grad student trying to sort this. I don't even know if I want to rehash it, but um, okay. There's there's sociology of taste, anthropology of taste, whatever, it doesn't exist, um, which is like, okay, your taste. You think it's subjective. You think you get to just like choose stuff. You think it's just like you know, expressive of you as an individual. Well, you're wrong. It's more determined than you think it is, right? It's like mm-hmm. shaped by sources, forces outside your control. That's our, that's our like, you know, sociology 101 take on taste. Thank you, Pierre Bourdieu and everyone else. Um, <laughs> on the technology side, we do the opposite thing, right? Oh, you think you have to build an airplane that way because it's the one best way no Mm. bucko there's choices in here it's subjectivity there's all sorts of like you know arbitrary shit going into the design of technologies and so we do the other way uh when we talk about technology so talking about a recommender system which is about taste and technology you have these kind of like converging and opposite moves and i could not write this up for the life of me i don't think Mm. i ever really succeeded in doing um because i felt like i needed to draw a big picture with an x on it that showed two things moving in opposite directions to say like yeah on the one hand these technologies are like subjective there's all these that theory is getting built into them and arbitrary stuff. Um, there's not one way to do it. And this is very obvious with the recommender, right? There's no mm-hmm. recommender that's like, clearly this is the way. There's, you don't even yep. know if it works. Um, and then you also have this this mode of trying to just kind of like profile taste and trying to figure out like well oh, taste is sort of determined Like they share this sociological common sense that like you don't have your taste alone uh, mm-hmm. That other people's preferences are reasonably predictive of what your preferences are going to be like that is a very solid sociological intuition about mm. What happens when people like stuff? That being said, I did try to move toward this sort of – I don't know if people read the like Antoine Henion, this pragmatics yeah. of taste stuff. So yeah. I was I was into that for a while. And so I try to pull – so Antoine Henion and other folks like Howard Becker, I suppose, gets into this camp. Yeah. But like these people who are like, okay, well, taste is maybe not just like, oh, you like this because you're in this social position – But maybe we need to talk about the experience of acquiring taste, right? Like taste as being Mm -hmm. this kind of instrumented activity, a thing that happens with all sorts of devices and in contexts and it's emergent. Uh, And I agree with that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that is the justification I use for saying, okay, so now people are acquiring taste or making taste happen in a world where recommender systems exist. So regardless of what theory gets built into these things, recommender systems are becoming part of the apparatus of taste, They're becoming part of that, those techniques that people use to learn what they like, to learn about themselves. Um, And so they get in, they get involved in taste, whether or not they're correct, according to Bourdieu or whatever. Um, And yeah, they could be anything, right? They could be really arbitrary or wrong. They could have a theory they're trying to implement and they could implement it incorrectly and it could still have an influence on how people like what they like. It's not quite performativity. It's not directly like we made the theory and now people like it because we said so. Um, Hmm. But it's not not that. (laughs) There's definitely like some, you know, there's some influence there. Uh, that was a very long answer to say like, oh my God, I, yeah, the taste literature is something that I read through a lot while trying to work on this. And it was so hard to bring it to bear on what these folks were doing because they just weren't doing that.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's in the title of the book. So it seems like- I know, it was in the title title of the (laughs) grant proposal. (laughs) Which is great. I've just had that title forever. But it made me think what you just described made me think of what a lot of uh, machine learning, deep learning, and AI is like. So- there are systems that are designed and, and implemented and tested and refined hoping to achieve a result without knowing exactly what what it's you know, what people are trying to get is so it could be driving a car right so you, you want to make a car that drives well drawing on data from cameras and sensors and things but not explain how to explain to the car what a pylon is or, or a pedestrian is right it should be like an emergent like good you know successful driving should be this emergent thing that happens from processing a lot of data and, and learning and training models so it seems like this is sort of the same for taste right so they these uh, people who develop recommender systems and the companies don't necessarily need to have a, a coherent sociological theory of taste and implement it but the systems are trying to you know make taste happen <laughs> somehow or like it's this emergent thing i don't know if it's i think important. that's
1: right there's a there, there's a bit that i write about it in the book where i say something like the read like the point of these systems is to like help support taste whatever it is Mm. and to make it happen more right there's this sense of like i mean there's there's like a basic like vulgar marxist take i can give on this which i think is Mm. not wrong but like please give us they want to listen to music more right they want to cultivate desire in you if you don't want 40 million songs they need to Mm. make 40 million songs Mm. like okay sure like that's fine that's that that makes sense uh, that's that's something you can say. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a great argument actually. There's a, a, a musicologist named Eric Drott who's at the uh, University of um, Texas at Austin, and he has an article that I can't remember the title of. I think it's like why the next song matters or something. And it's this deeply Lacanian reading of how <laughs> uh, the recommender systems like. Okay, so it's like streaming platforms, having given you access to like you know a shitload of music, need to make you feel like you're lacking something because as we know from Lacan, desire is lack, and if you feel like you mm-hmm. have everything, then you don't desire anymore. Uh, and so they do this like you know he, he does this analysis of these ads. It's kind of I don't know I like I I'm not I'm no Lacanian, but I kind of like the analysis, which is like you know they need to make you feel like you are missing something, like you need mm-hmm. something even though you have all the music. And what are you missing? Well, you're missing this knowledge of what. Is is next you're missing this like you you know it's that fits into the marxist take right to say okay well well, i have a problem i need my problem solved um there's a bit in the book where i talk about um, a, a, a person working in this space who gives a talk explaining his job and he's like, All right, what happens when you open up, you know, your music streaming service and you've got, I think he was 30 million songs at the time. Uh, and he's like, All right, you say, Cool, I'm gonna listen to that Dave Matthews band album I had on C D but never unpacked after my last move. Mm. And then an hour later, you're like, uh, what do I do now? And he says, That's right. my job. Like my job is to help you figure out what to do next. And I thought that I thought that was so interesting because this idea is like, it's kind of a problem if you're gonna listen to the Dave Matthews band album. You should be doing <laughs> something else. Um or if not if it's not a problem in the first place, like you will have this problem next. Like right, like right. we're all about what's we're all about helping you figure out what's next. And it's been so naturalized now, it's hard even for me to to think about a world where that might not be a real problem, right? Where that's right. kinda of like a fake a fake problem. Where you're like, I don't know, I'll just listen to whatever I feel like and if I don't want to, then I want not yeah. Like people
0: did in the old days
1: i know it's it's hard to imagine how did we li- how did we live before I was able to be like Spotify played me daily mix number five <laughs> i don't know if our uh,
0: lacanian in-, in residence uh
1: oh did I sell in the Lacanians? <laughs> you
4: son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a question uh, i i I have a couple questions um um can you clarify something for me that i've been wondering particularly about music recommendation algorithms um is there and maybe this is already discussed or maybe it's so obvious it's a dumb question but i i'm kind of curious I've, I've been wondering total labor as a total person like whatever waiting goes in to assign you know me my next song like is it primarily social is it social and formal formal in the sense of like oh, this person likes music at, you know, 80 beats per minute or, you know, or 140 beats per minute. So like that's a weighted factor in what comes up next. Um, Or is it or is it more like they listen to this? Other people who listen to this, listen to this other thing. And so, you know, like the weighting is just a a social network uh, as opposed to something that incorporates like, you know, easily automatable, like formal sort of uh, properties of music. Do you have any insight into into that?
1: I do. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really good question though actually. I always forget to to sort of spell that out because um, okay, so I will say that the default and the sort of most generic, most common thing is nothing about what you're s- describing the formal quality of music at all. That is to say no knowledge about what it sounds like, no knowledge about the name of the artist or the album, whatever. That the sort of uh, origin original form of this stuff is is what I've been calling collaborative filtering and that's very much the people who listen to this listen to that kind of, kind of recommendation. Um, and the reason that that was so popular to begin with is because you don't need as much data. That's very a very small amount of data you need for, you know, they listen to this. And it's also what they would call domain independent, right? So you can use the basically the same system to recommend jokes or recipes or hotels. Those are all actual like research systems that exist. Like there's a joke one out of Berkeley called Jester which was designed to do some of this work in the 90s so like if you I think it's still online if you want to get jokes recommended to you um, in any case you know the people who like you like this that was it uh, and that was they would describe it often as magical this idea that like you if you do that um, and if you do that and sort of produce do some of the machine learning techniques that got developed in this community and produce these spatial models of, of what's in there these are the models that are very 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 similar to what you'll see if you open up distinction by Pierre Bourdieu um, you'll see a a space a space uh, with um, you know users and items in it and the users will be close to each other if they are similar and in, in with regard to what they have you know liked uh, the items will be sim- close to each other if users have liked them similarly if similar users have liked them and you will be close to things in that space users close to items if you uh, are likely to like them and it's just you know similarity and uh, enjoyment are sort of distances in this space can be produced without any knowledge about what's in there um, and that's it. You can fine tune these things in a way that's sort of domain specific. Like maybe patterns of liking are different in music than in hotels, for instance. Um, but broadly speaking, it's the same. However, uh, nowadays those signals are like derived, derived from like a bajillion different data sources that have all been munged together and smushed in all sorts of ways. So any kind of like I can tell you that like a, a company like Spotify will probably have some kind of internal like similarity measure, for instance, between artists. And that into that number is like the most arcane hot dog of, a, of like a data processing infrastructure you can imagine. It's just like anything. Um, and that might include knowledge about audio, right? So, so, so companies like Spotify do do audio analysis. Um, and they, that, that does end up in there. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that a company could decide to sort of, you know, boost an importance or decrease an importance depending on the application, maybe even depending on the person. So I can tell you that like, uh, if you use Spotify, it's the easiest to talk about because more people are familiar with it. But on Spotify, for instance, you can start a radio station out of like anything, right? You can say like, here's a playlist and I'd like to make a radio station, which just means like another playlist similar to that one. Or here's an artist and I want a playlist. Here's an album and I want to make a playlist. Here's a song. and I a um, Almost certainly, I can't speak with any sort of absolute certainty here, but like I'd be pretty sure that under the hood, each of those kinds of radio will have a different balance of signals in it based on some product manager's idea about what you want when you click that, right? So like if you want song radio, maybe you do care more about what it sounds like. But if you pick artist radio, maybe you care more about like, you know, artists who are in the same sort of genre or artists that have similar like audiences, right? Um, and they can sort of tweak that and rebalance it and whatever. So there's just like a ton of now nowadays. Like a lot of these things are, are, are ensemble models as they're called, um, and they just throw anything in there that they can and tweak it. You know, they get they get if you get some very 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 minor improvement over a small percentage of your user base. If your user base is as big as Spotify's, that's a lot of users. It's I would say it's it's uh, social is like the default and what you I would expect to see anywhere. But they do have audio data. Um, and the way that that goes in can vary, right? So like Pandora, for instance, which is only exists in a few countries in the world. Um, but Pandora, which is operating in the US and is well known here, has um, famously this music genome project, which is basically they get uh, people with undergraduate music degrees to listen to songs and give them scores on this huge typology, which is like how much saxophone is in it? Uh, what's the you know what's the uh, 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 what's the key what's the tempo Et cetera? Um, and then they use that information to make recommendations and they I have claimed historically that that means their recommendations are better because they're about music itself quote unquote Um, but a company like Spotify or any other company will have also like machine listening data uh, that they use to do sort of similarity. So there's a chapter in the book um, that's also not out in any other article form that's about machine listening in this space. And it's so funny because I think a lot of people assume that it must be about audio, that they think the first thing is probably going to be this kind of like data about what it sounds like, but very much marginalized within within the space overall. That kind of data is... It's weirdly hard to use. I don't know. It's a, the, songs are very data dense once you open them up. So if you leave them closed and all you care about is sort of metadata about who is listening to what, it's a much more tractable computational problem than opening up that MP three file and realizing how many numbers are inside of it.
4: That's wild. I still remember back when. Uh... <laughs> Back when, like, Netflix, for a brief <laughs> interval, like, hired, like, taggers, you know? And they were looking yes. for people with, like, MAs in film studies, um, which oh. which I possess now. It was nice to hear about that UC <laughs> Berkeley <laughs> joke. I'm a, I'm a PhD candidate at film and media at UC Berkeley, so any, anything having to do is all a good joke to me. Um, and... Uh, but yeah, that the, the for, it's like I remember back in the day there was there was even like news coverage, I think on like Buzz, like a BuzzFeed article went huge about being like the best job in the world, like be a Netflix tagger. And then that sort of aspect of human evaluation just completely gone out the window once once I think they.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Once you get enough data about it, you don't need it anymore. You don't need the humans. You got all your training data for your machine learning system.
4: Yeah. And I I, I think in general, I mean, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, reading your book because it's like... Thank you. Sound is such a kind of privileged domain, I think, in a lot of media studies
1: kind of theory for... What? Pri- that is such a film studies thing to say.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, no, no, it's a privileged area for thinking about like this idea of automated systems pushing out, like, you know, so-called human involvement and judgment, you know, like oh, sure. from from Kittler, uh you know, to the present, this kind of, um, you know, alphabetical scripting. Or you know, Fourier transform, right, is kind of his like fetish. But it's like once you could do Fourier transform on, on on sound signals, people people don't have to exercise any kind of judgment or cognition anymore, basically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so it's it's, uh, but it's also, I mean, it's like we should also take. Seriously, it's like, I think, I I think it's, you know, these kind of giant, it's like, you know, you have this giant critical edifice from Kant to the present about like what judgment is, right? Like what taste is. Uh, And then uh, these computer nerds um, make it all entirely irrelevant. Right. Because it's like at the end of the day, a theory is just a a kind of speculative model of what is allegedly going on when we you know, claim we like this or we like that or we engage in one behavior versus another. We listen to one thing instead of another. At the end of the day. Right. It's all bullshit. It's all interpretations of what we're doing. And then like an entirely different technology, an entirely different set of technologies and conceptual resources is coming into play, which may be smarter or may be stupider, but it's like. There's like a direct like you were saying, it's like there's a there's there's a potentially kind of direct competition between a kind of techniques of taste and a sort of theoretical discourse on taste. And maybe the latter um, needs to uh, humble itself before the emerging uh, Leviathan, I guess. I don't know. But um, oh, th- oh, this oh, was oh. a thought that you that you sparked in me. I mean, what's what's your role as like a human interpreter of all this shit, right? Writing the kind of meta document oh about God. like what's what's going on, right? When these very technologies are kind of displacing the need for the kind of critical theory that we exercise, right? They're bringing in different kinds of tools to try and. You know, make their own arguments about like, no, this is why you like what you like, or it doesn't matter why you think you like it in this way because I have this algorithm that will push you onto new um, experiences uh, and et cetera. You know what I'm saying? What's your what's yeah. your what's your fucking excuse, Nick?
1: <laughs> what am I doing here? I- I this is a good question. Okay, so I think one of the things I realized as I was doing this, and this, I, to be honest this, this was helped because I consider myself a humanist, but I'm aware that I'm in, in a social science. I think the mo- we'd like to say the most humanistic of the social sciences whatever. In any case, I will sometimes say things like, as we all agree you know, Pierre <laughs> Bourdieu was right about why people like what they like or whatever. And then I get like humanists who are like, that is the worst theory I've ever heard. Like, I hate that. I hate I hate the sociological theory of taste i think it is bad Uh, and then it's funny to see because you're like you know what when i say something like yeah netflix like has a vaguely bordeauxian theory i don't know like in the abstract about why people like what they (laughs) like like in broad strokes that might be true and bad at the same time if you if you want to go back into this moment of like you know this idea that taste is kind of like a social epiphenomenon Uh, if you want to reject that then you could say yeah and that's why it sucks um, and it I was funny to me, like I hadn't really considered that. As someone who's, who loves ta- telling people in my field and myself that we're wrong because of our deeply disciplinary beliefs, um, I hadn't done that one before. And I was like, oh, maybe we're wrong. I don't know, that's possible. Um, the other thing though I wanted to get at was like the the, the Fourier transform thing. I have like <laughs> betrayed my my media studies origins by writing. I have a whole, like this whole chapter about sound is all about Fourier transforms. And I don't talk about Kittler at all because I couldn't bring myself to do it. This is one of the things that maybe if I'd had like another decade to do the book, I could have done uh, justice to. But there's a whole thing where they're like, what are we doing in this machine listening? We're just taking Fourier transforms of Fourier transforms of Fourier transforms. And it is the sickest stuff. Um, I hope someone's writing about this like full on (laughs) Kittlerian because... They call it, um, so there's a bit, it's called uh, the, the kind of audio representation they use or they used to use is called MEL frequency sepstral coefficients. And sepstrum is an anagram for spectrum because it's the oh, wow. you take a Fourier transform of your spectrogram, basically. Um, and what that gets you is sort of higher order patterns in frequencies. So, nominally, stuff like timbre or things like that. Mm-hmm. Very hard to interpret what the numbers actually mean, but like they seem meaningful. But whoever came up with this did this thing where you were, like, okay, I call it sepstral, C E P S T R A L, um, and we're going to do anagrams for everything. So there, I can't remember <laughs> the other ones. The only other I remember is uh, there's quiferency, which is the frequency equivalent within wow. the sepstral domain. Um, and there's a bit, oh my God, I wish I had this. Uh, I I took a picture of it and lost it because I'm bad at field work, but um, at one of these conferences there was a t-shirt that people from um, one of these labs made and on the back of it there was a three-dimensional spectrogram Um, and it said on it, it said, the time dome is for losers. (laughs) <laughs> because it was like you know, sound isn't real until you move it into the into uh, a spectrogram form. Like that's what that's what like audio data really. Is. Sorry, that's like a whole tangent. But like, I do feel bad that I didn't get to go like full Kittler on this. Um very uh, Fourier, transformed, besotted community. And I totally dodged your question about what my role is. I don't know what my role is. My role, uh, I thought, was my role was primarily not so much toward this domain itself, not toward recommender systems, but toward anthropology and the humanistic social sciences to say, hey, Uh, we need to take a role in relation to this stuff that is not naively adversarial, that does not take for granted that we have some sort of moral high ground and are just like right. And that's why we should be talking about this. This is where like STS work gets super, super annoying. Yeah. Um, uh, Because a lot of it it has this assumption that like we're just more clever than everyone else in the world. And like, that's why people should listen to us. (laughs) Sorry, this this is, I'm speaking (laughs) about self also sometimes. Tendency, which is like, if only these people did understand the world the way that I understand the world, then they would be like correct and somehow the world would be better. Um, and so I think in some sense, that's why I end up pointing back a lot to anthropology as a discipline. I do that a lot more than people, a lot of other anthropologists do actually, maybe because I'm nervous about my status or something, but mm. to say like, hey, like we need to think about what we're doing here in a way that does not take for granted that like the big bad computer is alterity for us. So I have, an, I have a, a book chapter called Bastard Algebra. Uh, which is in this weird prickly paradigm pamphlet called Data, Bigger oh, yeah? and Better. And I love that piece. It's so weird. And it's about the history of anthropologists talking shit about math uh, and <laughs> using how bad math is uh, to explain how good we are. And I still stand by that. And I think it's a problem that, that we do that. So that's in some ways, that's actually the move. Um, there's plenty of people making critiques of recommender systems. There are a lot of really good ones. There are lots of really bad ones. Um, and I just felt like at some point, I didn't really want to turn book into a like look here's like a shitty thing a recommender system did isn't that obviously bad because it's true it is bad like a lot of bad stuff happens through them but bad enough already so i was trying to do something else trying to make like conversations between Mm -hmm. anthropological theory and whatever thinking is going on in these spaces because i wanted to see what would happen i guess
0: makes
3: sense yes (laughs) maybe So yeah, this has been fascinating and it's like well um, well outside my area of expertise, but it has made me think of some conversations I've had um, recently. Um, a conversation I had like last year with a friend who works for a record label um, who said that so much of his job now is like about trying to second guess algorithms and um, and get a sense of what would be what would be added to a certain playlist on spotify or how they could even you know manipulate their record labels playlists in order to boost um their own artists because they also you know they they curate their own uh playlists of what they're listening to in the office and stuff like this and how they could make that even a, a way to boost their own artists and then also it's made me think of kind of conversations I've had with friends um, who in this in this mode of like being very critical of Spotify and of the death of music have brought up this thing of um, Spotify kind of changing the way music is listened to in the sense of like the endless playlist, the, the um, collapse of genre or album into, you know, chill out mix, which will just kind of, which will just be background music that you have on while working and stuff like this. I'm wondering, I, I was just kind of curious how far your research had touched on those questions or or what your thoughts are about those questions of like how is this changing listening how's this changing the making of music
1: yeah so i I appreciate that framing because Uh, I think a lot of people ask me about precisely those two things, about the effect on listeners and the effect on artists, um, and expect that somehow I will, like, know for sure about that because of what I study. But I study engineers, right? So I don't know. And I think it's an empirical question. I think, importantly, it's an empirical question. I think a lot of people approach these systems... As though they have some obvious effect on when I say these systems, I don't mean music streaming. I mean I mean recommenders specifically. So separate from the compensation stuff, even, but like that it has some obvious effect on artists and on listeners, right? That it must cause this to happen, um, and that is some a weird form of technological determinism that I don't really want to get behind. Um, I can tell people what like the folks that I spoke to who built some of these systems thought was happening and like why they were doing it and what they anticipated, um, but luckily, sort of over the past few years, there's been a lot more work from people trying to research that other side of things so doing what you were describing right st- talking to folks working in like small record labels and saying like what is it like to promote music uh, in a world where you know the algorithm is the boss or whatever um, and i think it's important because you get these goofy stories like oh you know spotify is making it so that artists have to like put the hook in the first 30 seconds because uh, that's how the algorithm works which cuts out like a whole interpretive loop here right like It can't the algorithm doesn't make anything happen directly you need some sort of mechanism to get it in there and what you have is this like interpretation of what what the algorithm does which is like okay well i need to be able to guess as a a musician or a manager or something i need to be able to, to build a model of what i think is happening if i'm going to try to act strategically and that's a really important part of that loop right like that's that mediates the whole effect of 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 a recommender unless you have some weird sort of evolutionary model of like people will do it for reasons they don't understand and it will just end up drifting that way um but yeah i think that that's that's like a a big important empirical question and i hope we get more empirical research on it it's very hard to operationalize i don't envy the people who want to study a weirdly diffuse group like spotify listeners that's like not even a group really um very hard to, to specify but I, I hope that we see more more work from that that gets at literally you know what's happening um, I tend to be fairly you know I don't know what the word I'm looking for is uh, nonchalant about some of the effects which makes me some people mad which is fine um, because I you know I, I want to try to take a view of like any of these systems are gonna have effects on listeners. Like that's how that's what a listening technology does. Um and so if we find any kind of effect, there's a tendency to say that that effect is negative. And I think it's more like that effect is inevitable and we can think about what kinds of effects are negative, but like not any effect is negative. So one of them um is this like background listening. So there's this fun moralizing idea that listening to music in the background while you do something else is like a betrayal of the musician who made the music. Mm. Um, which I think is a weird history of music. It's like a weird take. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of music historically that's designed to be listened to while you're doing something else. Um, whether that's, you know, being at church or watching a show in the in a theater or whatever. And, and there's absolutely like labor questions around it. Like I not I think that that's all very important. I think the compensation stuff is huge. I think, um, a lot of the sort of alienation stuff is, it can be a big deal. And yeah, a lot of these earlier moments have local, have critiques happening like at the time. Um, but music, you know, like people in music in sections and it's not really debasing of music to be like, I want to listen to music while I'm at the gym. I just I just find that a weirdly moralizing argument against listeners that I don't that I don't need. Um, back when I was doing fieldwork, this is, was a funny one, actually. So back when I was doing fieldwork, uh, it used to be the case that you could scrape all of the playlists that were on Spotify mm. using their API. And I talked to a guy at one of these like hackathon events that people were having way back when, and he was like, "You want to know what the most popular playlist title is on Spotify? Uh, this is back when it was possible to scrape it all. It's chill." I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> like, of like of course it's chill." So, so Spotify clearly and kind of reasonably understand that it's supposed to be responding to a world in which what people want is playlists that are chill. Like they're not like, yes, they're reinforcing it. And they're, and of course they're not, they're, they're not just like reproduce you know, they're not just representing what's going on. They're sort of intervening, but like Spotify did not invent chill and force chill on everyone. Spotify is, you know, amplifying chill, let's say. Uh, and the chilling is a thing that people want to do. So let let the people chill. I don't know. I don't. I, I feel like that's that's something that uh, you know let the people chill, but also make sure that they pay the artists that are supporting their chilling um, adequately. And that, that's uh, know, yeah, yeah it's right. like a, let,
0: probably the, the, the origin of Netflix and chill. We found
1: it. But the, is
0: it? I
3: don't know if that. <laughs> no, I don't no, know no. if that's true. But let the no, people no. let
1: the people chill. Is I don't know. I think is important, and that's where I get back in sort of my my like sort of weirdly sunny corner of media studies that I came from, which is that like you know we we don't want to pathologize all you know normal forms of media use necessarily. We could sometimes, um, but like there's a there's a history of demonizing background listening. There's an article um, by musicologist named Christina Bod. Um, she can't remember the title, but it's about Songza, which is one of the context-specific um, music recommender apps that used to exist and got bought by someone, Google probably, um, where she talks about the sort of like feminized history of background listening. There's a whole funky thing. Like at the mm-hmm. BBC, they used to call um, Housewives tap listeners because they left the radio running in the background like they had the, left the faucet on. Uh, and there's this kind of like that's not real listening. Like good listening is attentive mm-hmm. and masculine and like active and bad listening, you let the music wash over you and you sit back like a woman. You're like, come on. Like, we don't, I think yeah. we need to sort of open up to variety while, again, you know, recognizing that these systems are not just like neutral conduits for desire. There are these sort of amplifications that happen. Yeah,
3: yeah. It's uh, passive podcast listening, which I'm engaging in today. Sick.
1: Yeah. It's a sickness. People should be talking back to their... <laughs> well,
0: I, I, I would wrap this up by... You. Go buy Nick Seaver's Computing Taste. That's right. University of Chicago Press. University of Um, Chicago Press. NickSever.net slash Computing Taste. Get a review copy from journals or whatever. Just get it. Um, Yeah, that's it.